I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Unfortunately, things are about to change. Alien intelligence is heading towards us at breakneck speed. This alien's not rocketing through space. It will be born right here on Earth. A sentient AI that will emerge in a research lab. How do I know it will emerge? And I know that research labs are spending billions of dollars creating artificial brains composed of billions of artificial neurons. Mother Nature has already proven that this approach works. It will happen. An alien will arrive. And it will be smarter than us. I would say that there's some aspects of the fear are overblown and some aspects of the fear are, are not taken seriously enough. Non-trivial, it has the potential of civilizational destruction. These systems can now be programmed to influence us conversationally. And so misinformation and targeted influence is going to become conversational instead of documents popping up. And we are not prepared for that. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. It's um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Obviously, we, we were speaking, I think it was on the back of an article that you wrote in respect to generative inbreeding. And I was really fascinated by what you had to say. So we connected on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, the rest is history. So it's a pleasure to have you on. I guess like before we dive into the crux of the conversation, let's maybe start with a little bit about who you are, what you do and why. Sure. So I am... Uh... A technologist. I've been uh, working on really advanced technologies for the last 35 years. The three technologies that I've really focused on during my career is uh, is virtual reality, augmented reality, and artificial intelligence. And so I started in in virtual reality uh, back in 1991 at uh, uh, in labs at, at Stanford and at NASA. And then I went to Air Force Research Laboratory in the U.S. And then I decided to go into industry and I founded a number of companies. So I, <clears throat> I founded one of the early VR companies, a company called Immersion in 1993. And then I founded uh, one of the early augmented reality companies, a company called Outland Research in 2002. And then in 2014, I founded uh, my current company, which is an artificial intelligence company, a, a company called Unanimous AI. And all three of these different areas and different technologies are really unified by, by a single principle, which is that I, I focus on technologies that amplify human abilities uh, rather than replace human abilities. And so uh, that's what got me interested in virtual reality and augmented reality. And it's really what drove me to, to found an, an artificial intelligence company uh, nine years ago, because I could see that artificial intelligence had reached a level where it was really going to start replacing human abilities. And at, at Unanimous AI, we really do the opposite. We, we use AI not to replace people, but to connect groups of people together and make them smarter as a team. 
And so it's really about uh, amplifying human intelligence rather than replacing it. And, and so I'm also a, a vocal uh, advocate for, um, for keeping humans in the loop, uh, because I, I do think there's a lot of dangers of too quickly replacing people and, and human judgment and human decisions at, at various stages in the process. And, um, and now that's happening very, very quickly. Yeah, definitely. There's an awful lot of hype in respect to AI. And there's also the wider narrative in respect to a, are we entering a computer revolution? So I'd love to get your take on the current landscape. Sure. So I, I do think that we are entering a, a, a really a, a serious uh, computer revolution uh, around AI. And, you know, as, as someone who's been involved for 30 years, I've seen, you know, waves of hype and, and, and winters in, in AI over time. Uh, this time it's it's real, meaning I, I do believe that this is you know, a, a revolution in the sense that it's going to change society in major ways. Um, and just as much as you know, we had the PC revolution, we had the internet revolution, we had the mobile phone revolution, you know, each of those technologies really changed how we live and, and how we interact. I think now we're we're entering an AI revolution that will be just as impactful. What's different is it will actually happen much faster. And I say that because having having lived through the the, the PC revolution, you know, it it took at least a decade, uh, even from when the first personal computers emerged to it really impacting all society. It was about a decade. Uh, the internet revolution was a little bit faster uh, when the first browsers came out. You know, more six or seven years for it to really impact all of society. Mobile phone, uh, also a little bit faster, five or six years from when the iPhone came out to, to it really over, overcoming, um, say, flip phones. With AI, I think it's, we're really looking at you know, two or three years to see the major impacts from, you know, people will look back at when ChatGPT was first launched and, uh, and in a two to three year period, we'll see that these technologies will change everything. And, and you know, there's a lot of different ways that it will change things. People are most most focused on how these uh, how these generative AI systems, large language models, can uh, you know, create documents and images and uh, and videos and and do content creation at, at human levels, and uh, and that's amazing and remarkable, and it will change a lot of things. There's another piece of it that I think people don't see the impact of as much, and I think it'll actually have a bigger impact, and that's the fact that these very same technologies will allow us to interact with computers conversationally. And, uh, and so we are really entering this age of conversational computing, where we will be talking to our computers and they will be talking back. And that will happen very, very quickly uh, over the next two to three years. You you will be talking to represent you know virtual representatives, you know artificial agents regularly when you're interacting with software, when you're interacting with web pages, when you're interacting uh, with with technology at all levels. And, and it's not going to be the type of artificial agent like like Siri and Alexa, where you know talking to Siri means issuing a command and then Siri responds. Large language models now allow you to you to really hold an interactive conversation with software. You, you will, the, these large language models can follow the conversation over time, can understand the context over time, 
can actually be programmed to probe you for more information. And so it's it's a genuine conversation where you're asking questions of the AI, the AI is asking questions of you, and that's how we interact with, with software. That's how we will ultimately be doing search and how we will be doing a lot of the basic functions we do on computing will be conversationally. At first, right now, it's chat-based, text chat-based. It will evolve rather quickly to voice-based, where you will just talk to your computer through voice, and you will see uh, a you know a virtual representative that looks just like any other person, like in a Zoom window, but it's a it's an artificial agent. It looks photorealistic. It'll be talking back to you, and that will be your search engine. And we are very close to that. We are just a, a few years away from that being how we interact with computers. There's definitely been a heightened speed of transition as well. Obviously, people's looked at things like ChatGPT, but then equally, you know, like Google with Gemini, they're pretty close in respect to that. The launch of of that product, and like we're we're hearing at the moment that some people have got early access to it, so it can't be too far away until that comes into uh, into play. So, yeah, I guess also in the with we're respect to the advancements that we're seeing at the moment there is also a lot of uh, i would say like fear around ai so in your perspective is that justified or is it overblown uh so it's both <laughs> and i would say that there's some aspects of the fear are uh are overblown and some aspects of the fear are are, are not taken seriously enough and so you know the, the overblown fear uh is this idea that um that ai systems are about to be sentient and are about to um, to rise up against humanity. I think that's that's a, a real risk that we should think about. But I just don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I think we're we're thinking we're more you know should be thinking you know, a decade away, and so we have time to to protect uh, to protect ourselves from this uh, from the idea that that at some point, and I do believe it will happen, uh, AI systems will have a will of their own, and and. And they will likely be smarter than individual humans. And that's a dangerous thing, but that's not today or tomorrow. That said, I do think that their AI systems now are extremely powerful and they don't need to have a will of their own to be dangerous. They just need to be in the hands of a person with a will of, <laughs> of his or her own to be dangerous. And so uh, current AI technologies can be deployed in dangerous ways. I would say that there are kind of familiar ways that, that people are worried about AI being deployed into dangerous ways. And then there are unfamiliar ways. You know, the, the familiar ways, you know, people talk a lot about uh, AI being used to, to spread disinformation. And usually the conversation is about, well, you can create, you know, you can ask ChatGPT or, or other generative systems to create uh, documents that look authentic, that are fake, to create videos that look authentic, that are fake. Uh, to create images and photos that look authentic, that are fake. And so it, you know, misinformation is not a new problem, but these AI systems can accelerate the creation. Uh, and, and that's a, a real risk. But to me, that's like a familiar risk where, where it becomes, where I think people are not worried enough is where it becomes an unfamiliar risk. And that's where it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, where we're going to be interacting with computers conversationally in the very near future. You know, we're, we're going to be interacting uh, by talking to our computers. Our computers are going to talk back. We're going to engage search engines by talking to our computers, and uh, which means that these these systems can now be programmed to influence us conversationally. And so, misinformation and uh, and targeted influence is going to become conversational instead of documents popping up. 
And so, and we are not prepared for that at, at all because it, these AI systems will be much more effective at influencing us conversationally than by producing fake documents. And, and you can think about that, like think of like a, a salesperson, right? Like a salesperson is a person trying to influence somebody else, right? Uh, they, they have an agenda. Their goal is to get you to buy a, a new car or get you to buy whatever the product is. A salesperson knows that the way to influence the customer is not to just hand that person a brochure, right? That's like, that's the least effective way. A salesperson knows the way to, to influence a customer is to engage that customer in friendly conversation, to learn some things about that customer, to, um, to probe that customer for information, and then to make a sales pitch. And then as object, as the customer expresses resistance, to overcome that resistance by you know adjusting their tactics well we are very we are very soon going to enter a world where ai systems are doing that and they're doing that better than salespeople. meaning yeah. we will engage an ai system the ai system will engage us in friendly conversation it will read our emotions from our voice as we're uh you know our vocal inflections um it will potentially even if, if there's a camera involved read our emotions from our our facial expressions and uh and it will be programmed to to influence us, to, to pursue some agenda. Um, and so a targeted influence campaign won't, again, it won't just be what documents pop up. It will be what this AI says to you when you're having a conversation with it. And, and it will potentially know a lot about you when you first log in, right? Like when you, when you go into Google, Google knows a lot about you when yeah, it gives definitely. you search results. Well, now when Google is a, you know, an AI that has, you know, that has a persona and you're, you're talking to your search engine and that search engine knows a lot about you, it will be able to guide the conversation to be very appealing to you. It'll be able to speak in at the education level and at the, you know, whatever your, whatever your interests and background and, and your cultural issues are, it will, it will speak to you in, in a, in a manner and in a voice that's appropriate to you. It will bring up examples that are very fitting for you I will read your uh, your reactions off your face and in your voice, and adjust to your to any objections that you might raise. And so it will be a very skilled form of influence. Now, if it's trying to sell you a product, maybe that's not that dangerous. If it's trying to convince you of a piece of misinformation, that's really dangerous. And so you know, we're about to enter a world where uh, misinformation will happen in real time, yeah, where AIs are AI is just generating it for you based on your unique history and background and personality and based on your uh, your reactions in real time and we you know we're not prepared for that type of influence we are going to be outmatched because these systems can be programmed to be very very skilled at doing this and um, and there currently are not strong protections against that the, the EU is trying to put you know uh, AI act in place that would potentially yeah. uh, potentially protect against some forms of manipulation, which is great. Uh, the EU is kind of ahead of the curve. I, I hope the the U.S. and, and other jurisdictions do do similar things, uh, because it's to me it's this AI manipulation problem that is I, I think the most dangerous because it's the least with at least familiar with it. Uh, whereas most of the other risks, whether it's threat to jobs or threats of misinformation, traditional misinformation. Those are amplifications of existing dangers that we know, but um, 
But as AI becomes interactive and can respond to us and adapt to us as a form of influence, we are not yet prepared for that. Yeah, definitely. It, for me personally, I think that as a society, we're kind of a bit asleep at the wheel at this point in time. We're looking at what's taking place and, you know, the ease of usage and I guess to a certain extent, the human laziness that's that's there just to make use of a software and technology that makes life easy in respect to engagement but then there's the wider piece in respect to foresight and looking at cultural implications obviously you wrote a, a an amazing article in respect to generative ai but the whole impacts upon human culture and i guess like artistry in general like why is this such a concern so in addition to the conversational aspects of generative ai that these systems can also create artifacts uh, and they can create artifacts, uh, they can create documents that are very well written, can create artwork that looks like human human created artwork, poetry that looks and reads like human created poetry, videos. Uh, I mean, uh, really anything that humans can create, these systems can can produce. They, I would say that they're not creative in the sense that humans are creative, even though they seem creative, right? Like they, mm. you ask it to create, uh, you know, an image of a, a cat juggling and it will create an image of a cat juggling and it will look great. Um, it, when I say it's not creative in that it's, it's these systems remarkably are statistical, right? They, they've been trained on billions of documents, billions of images, billions of, of human content created in the past. And it will statistically create an image that is the most likely to represent a, a cat juggling and uh, and it will create that cat juggling in a certain style and if you say a cat juggling in the style of picasso it will then create the image that's statistically most likely to be a cat juggling in the style of picasso and, and some people wonder well if it's statistical why don't why doesn't the image come out at the exact same way every time like if i ask a cat juggling in the style of picasso why doesn't it produce this same exact image every time it actually doesn't because they are they introduce the, the the creators of the platforms create introduce a little bit of noise that they call temperature, which uh, is a little bit of randomness. So that when you ask it for uh, a particular output, it's always a little bit different, and uh, and that to us makes it seem creative, but it's creative in kind of a statistical way, in a random way, not in the way that a, a human would be creative. And, and I say that because the AI might create a cat juggling, but it's not bringing its own sensibilities to that process. It's not bringing its own ideas to that process. The AI doesn't even know what a cat is or, or juggling is. It's, it's an equation that's creating this image and, and it's creating it based on, you know, a huge volume of, of prior content of, of what humans have created. And so it's a, it's a statistical representation of humans creations. So, there's there's two big risks to that. One is just the threat to, to artists today, mm. right? If you're if you're an artist or a composer, because the same issue exists with music. If you're an artist or a composer, soon a videographer as well. These systems will create videos um, very soon. They'll be able to create you know a TV commercials, you know that that look like real TV commercials. Um, and so if you if you're a creator in any of these fields, you now have a competitor that is faster than you, that can create high quality work, uh, can create lots of variations very quickly, and it's potentially very cheap. 
And so you now have a big threat and, and it's already impacting artists, certainly people who are graphic designers or artists who do illustrations for books or, or book covers or, uh, or web pages. I mean, you now have this competitor that is, that's faster and cheaper. And, and now we have this threat that are, are artists going to be able to make a living, you know, commercial artists, artists, I'm not talking about fine artists who are trying to get into a museum. I'm talking about commercial artists who make their living in that field. Very, very difficult. And it will only get worse. Same thing is happening for, for uh, composers. Yeah, again, not uh, classical composers yet, but there's a lot of people who make their living generating music for, for video games and for background music for TV commercials. And, and now it's faster and easier to have an AI gen generate that music. And again, it's, it's going to impact the ability of these struggling artists who were not, who, who were not getting rich <laughs> before now have this competitor and it's very dangerous. So, so the first risk is that um, we're potentially going to make it harder for people, for humans to be artists because, because they have a com competitor. The other risk is that these, these pieces of artwork that are being generated, they're not authentically creative and they're backwards looking, meaning they're based on a statistical model of the past. Yeah, definitely. And so it means, it means that we're creating content that is not evolving but is replicating the past and, and in, in a lot of cases doing, you know, a slightly worse replication than the past. And, uh, and that's stifling to human culture, to human art, to, to the advancement of art and music and, and film and, and even uh, writing. And so we now have this new content creator that's making it harder for people to become artists and, and creators. It's producing content based on the past. So it's stifling our, our culture. And then there's this worst additional issue, which, which is the one I wrote about called generative inbreeding, which is we're getting to a point now where generated art, art created by AI is filling the internet, right? Yeah. Fill, and, and so these systems that, that are trained on all the artwork and all the documents and all the content that's out there on the internet is now starting to get trained on its, on its own content, on its, on its own com computer generated content. And, and right now it's very difficult for systems to identify computer generated content, AI generated content from authentic content. People are trying to put watermarking systems in and, and, and other, other technologies to make it identifiable. But so far it's been defeatable and, and it's not, uh, it's not been reliable. And so we're, we're now in a world where content's being created. AI systems are going to be trained on AI generated content. And that is basically inbreeding where instead of, instead of these systems, just looking back on the human past to create content, they're now looking at the human past plus this AI generated distortion of the human past. And so it's, it's basically trained on a copy of a copy. And then a year from now, systems will be trained on a copy of a copy of a copy. And, and, uh, and we, you know, at, at some point, human culture will start to be driven more by the way these AI systems work than the way human artists work and think. And, um, and, and it's actually, uh, it, it creates this, this really strange situation where we're trying to protect human artists from being ripped off. And at least in the U.S., there was just a big uh, legal ruling that says that 
AI generated art can't be copyrighted. It, it can't yeah. be protected. And that's a good thing for artists, but it's actually also a bad thing because now you have all this AI generated art filling the filling the internet that's not copyrighted and human generated art is copyrighted. And so if you are going to stick something on your website, what are you going to pick? You're going to yeah. go. And so we're actually perpetuating the situation where our culture and all the images that we see online and everywhere are going to be more and more AI generated content. And, and at what point can we stop saying it's human culture and start saying, well, it's, it's AI driven culture based on, you know, what, what humans did in the past and then AI is moving it forward. So it's, I, I do worry a lot about uh, the impacts of these generative systems on creators, uh, creators in all, all disciplines, in, unless there really is protections in place that, that protect their livelihoods and protect the rights to their content and, and also limits the, just the proliferation of AI-generated content uh, versus human content, we're going to have a, just significant negative impacts. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like looking back at culture as a whole, as I grew up in the eighties, so around about that time, um, music and movies had such a powerful influence in, in shaping culture and shaping wider society in respect to the content that was produced. And today, you know, like Warner Music made history signing a record deal with the first AI virtual pop star recently. So the whole narrative of how music and then movies and like today i would i would argue gaming is um, a cultural shaping force now that's kind of come directly into conflict with ai and the whole premise of um the compounding nature of the content that ai produces and the fact that yeah as you say if if you're going to utilize free free assets versus copyright um driven assets then you've got to go use a free one and and that's that's intriguing in respect to the wider implications for society as a whole. Like what, what do we want to become? Do we want to utilize technology to become better and grow and evolve? Or do we want to kind of, I don't know, be shackled by the limitations that it, it does propose in, in what you've articulated? I guess one of the interesting elements in respect to AI for me is the interplay of AI and human emotion. Like, I'm really intrigued into the premise of can AI ever truly comprehend human emotion? And yeah, like maybe delve into some of the nuances around that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. First, just a comment on the, the Warner uh, signing a uh, their first record contract with a, basically an, an AI pop star. You know, from a technology perspective, it's impressive. From a business perspective, it's, it's really scary because the, you know, if it works out well for, for, uh, for Warner, now they have a, basically a musical act that they don't have to pay royalties to. <laughs> they don't, like, I mean, so now human musicians have to compete with performers that don't cost as much and and can you know work 24 hours a day or do or do like it is uh, it's a really it's a really negative turn for an industry that should be trying to trying to protect their artists <laughs> rather than rather than roll out a, a, an artificial artist uh, because the success of that if 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 they are successful then 
every record label will do that. And that's just one less human artist who, uh, who they would represent. And it's a, basically a free alternative, essentially, um, that will drive down the livelihoods of, of other artists. So uh, it is, uh, it is uh, definitely a, an, an interesting but, but concerning turn. When we go to, to talking about human emotions, so the question is, you can, uh, can an AI system you know, comprehend human emotions? Uh, and I would say the, the answer is yes. AI systems are actually very skilled at assessing human emotions. And I use the word assessing because it, it's very analytical, right? Like we as a, as a human can, can read somebody else's face and, and read their emotions and their voice. And, and we, we actually feel their emotions. We, we feel, you know, we feel empathy for their emotions. We actually have something called mirror neurons. So we will, will literally feel the same emotion that, um, that somebody that we're watching feels. And so an AI system will not do that. It will not feel other people's emotions, but it will be able to categorize their emotions, assess their emotions very analytically. Uh, these systems can already assess emotions from your voice. If you're, again, if you're talking to an AI system and you're getting bored, it will know that from your voice. If you're getting angry, it'll know that. If you're getting excited, if, if you're, again, if you're a shopper and you're getting, uh, and, and you're getting excited about a, a prospect, it's, it's, it's giving you a pitch in a certain way and you're responding with certain inflections in your voice, it will know that your emotion is heading in a certain direction. It will also read those emotions off your face. You know, I, when I tell people that that's very dangerous, they often say, well, human, humans can already do that. A human salesperson can already do that. So what's, why is it dangerous? And it's dangerous because these AI systems actually can detect emotions that are imperceptible to humans. So, so not only can they detect human emotions, they can do it better than humans. And so they can, uh, AI systems can now detect what are called micro expressions, which yeah. are expressions that are so subtle that you as another human wouldn't necessarily notice it, but, but it would notice it. Uh, and that's dangerous because we didn't like, we, as the, uh, as the person being observed, we don't know that we're, that they can read our face, right? Like we're like, we, we have a certain level of expectation of what emotions can be read. And now with uh, just a camera can read your micro expressions and, um, and we're not prepared for that. Um, the AI systems can also read emotions from the blood flow patterns on your face. So, and humans can do that. If somebody blushes, that's a blood flow pattern on your face, but that's a really extreme reaction. So somebody can see a blush, an AI system with, with a camera can actually detect very, very subtle changes in blood flow patterns. And so again, it can detect emotions that, that, you, that, other, that humans might not be able to detect. And so it's, you know, we're, we're entering a world where these AI systems are going to be able to read us better than we can read other people. And, and I think it's really interesting to think about it that way, because, you know, there's, you know, a lot of people are worried, you know, we're creating these AI systems to be, to be very human uh, because we're training them on all this human data and all this. And, and really what we're, what we're doing is we're training these systems to pretend to be human and to be really good at reading humans. And so it's like, and so that's, you know, again, there's all kinds of positive applications that you could have of that, you know, a system that they can read your emotions. Like if you, if you want to have a virtual uh, coach, like yeah. virtual coach and, it's going to be motivational. It's going to help you get in shape or help you. 
being able to read your emotions is a positive thing. But if it's a, trying to, to influence you on buying a product or believing a piece of misinformation, being able to read you is really dangerous. And yeah. the, the thing that makes me worried about it is that the companies that are deploying these very large AI platforms, they're the same companies that create search engines and create social media platforms. And so those companies, their business is selling influence. That's, that's their business model. If you're, whether you're Google or Meta or, you know, any, any company that is a big tech platform, you're running a search engine so you can sell advertisements, which is sell influence. And so when you transition your search engine to a conversational system that can read people's emotions and read their vocal inflections, are you going to suddenly change your business model away from selling influence? Probably not. And if you realize, well, I can use their vocal inflections and their facial expressions and, and, and their emotions to influence them better, they're going to do that. Unless, unless there's regulations in place that say, no, it, you can't do that. You can't, uh, you can't use these powerful technologies for targeted influence, uh, for conversational influence. If those protections are in place, then you know, we can benefit from the really, uh, really amazing positive things that these systems can do but not have to worry about the, you know, the, the really dangerous uses that, that could manipulate us that, that really go, I, to me, really go from what right now is aggressive marketing online could go to actual manipulation online. Yeah, definitely. That's one of my biggest worries because, you know, looking at the wider implications in respect to the ability to manipulate people and also the undercurrents of possible bias in there. I also am intrigued in respect to how this will play out in future elections and how the whole polit global political landscape will evolve in time. Because I do think that at this point in time, we are in an age of education and we really need to be understanding the technology, understanding the evolutions around us to really understand the world that we're going to inherit and, and go into. But equally, if, if a lot of these kind of pieces of software and technologies are being built on, you know, from what we, we mentioned earlier in respect to Google with their tool of Gemini that's coming soon. And, you know, if they're built on existing mechanisms and infrastructure that has, I guess, like for the course of their evolution, I guess the currency that they deal with is our attention. So the ability to maintain our attention for longer periods of time leads to greater levels of influence, greater levels of profitability and greater levels of power and leverage. But then equally, what, what does that play out from a human level? Um, you know, in respect to rise of addictions, <laughs> epidemics of isolation, you know, the wider implications of things like sado populism. There's a, there's a lot of interesting connotations that are going to play out in the next couple of years. And I think that, you know, for, for me, it's an opportunity for policymakers, especially to really pay close attention to what's, what's taking place because, um, yeah, you can't you can't put the genie back in a bottle, but it's it's ultimately about understanding um, the opportunities as well as the challenges that are going to flow through. So, so absolutely, and I mean, you're exactly right that these you know the current big tech platforms are motivated largely by by drawing your attention, and and they're very skilled at drawing your attention. 
And these generative AI tools are a new, a new technology that actually will supercharge their ability to draw your attention. And, uh, you know, I, I talked a bit about, you know, conversational ways they can draw your, they can draw your attention because when you engage an AI system in conversation and it starts talking about things that are of interest to you, you know, it asks you about your favorite sports team because it knows that and it, it, it can draw you into conversations in very skillful ways that um, will make you spend more time than you would have otherwise. But even before we look at generative you know, conversational systems, uh, big tech platforms are now looking at uh, rolling out just traditional ads that are generative, meaning if it's like an automobile advertisement of a, you know, a car with a family and with a background, and, and that's intended to draw your attention when it pops up online, that is now starting to become generative, meaning they can create that advertisement on the fly, specifically for somebody like you. So they could have, uh, you know, generate, generate that advertisement based on demographic characteristics so that it's, you're most likely to be drawn to it. And, um, and it will be very soon be personalized on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So the advertisement that you see, even though it looks like a flat print, print advertisement, you know, if it's a, a minivan with a young family in the background and mountains in the background, and that could be designed specifically in real time because they know that's going to draw Peter's attention more than other things. In fact, they could know what colors are most likely to draw your attention and what fonts and what style of language in the advertisement. And so we're going to enter a world where we, it feels like, well, everybody must be seeing that same ad. That's just an ad that popped up. And you might not realize, no, that was custom generated to maximize its impact on you, to maximize the chances that you will draw your attention and you'll, you'll look at it for just a little bit longer. And, and that will start out as flat images, but then very soon, and we're already getting to that ability, uh, video, video advertisements will be able to get generated the same way, where a video television commercial of could be generated specifically for you to draw your interest and draw your attention again from everything from the colors and shapes and background and and environment to the types of people that show up in that video are, are custom and it, what's so dangerous about it is that it it becomes invisible to us like mm -hmm. we don't realize we're we don't realize that we're in a world that's being custom generated for us in real time. We think this is just the world that everybody else sees. Yeah. And, and the reason we're unprepared for it is that we did not evolve as like human organism did not evolve for that world. Like we, we evolved from the earliest, you know, creatures evolved to be in a world where when we discover something, we think that it was there and anyone else who goes to that same place is going to discover the same thing. And, uh, and it's so the world's de deterministic. I, I see what's there. And if I see something uh, more often, it means that there's more of that thing in this world. If I see, uh, if, 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 you know, when, you know, in early days of human history, if, uh, if a person was walking through the wilderness and saw, you know, a particular plant a bunch of times, it would say, well, that type of plant is common around here because there's this deterministic relationship between cause and effect. But we're increasingly en entering this world where, no, there's a third party that's actually changing what we, <laughs> changing what we discover, changing what we see 
changing the types of advertisements that show up to us. And so we lose the ability to even judge cause and effect. We lose the ability to judge what is commonplace and what's not commonplace. And, and this problem, you know, it's not brand new. I mean, it's going to get much worse with generative AI, but it's, it's been a significant danger and, and negative consequence of just social media because you have people who, you know, people on social media potentially are getting sent very uh, maybe fringe pieces of information, fringe advertisements, fringe uh, news information because they were, the AI system decided that they'll send them this piece of news about, you know, whatever, some, some fringe piece of information about COVID uh, because they seem to like that. And every time they, they, they go online, they see that type of information and they start to think, well, that's commonplace information. Like they don't have the context that when something is commonplace versus not commonplace because they're being, it, they're being fed the information. And, um, and with generative AI, where, where things are being customized down to the person, it will become impossible. We will all live in this mediated world and we'll just lose a sense of like, what is our common reality? We, we, there is no common reality if, if we're all getting customized information sent to us. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, definitely. And and it's it's not just in advertising. Obviously, in the industry I know and love um, with respect to computer games, the ability to have customized generative AI content within the games that we're going to be playing. Like, you know, I've talked in previous po podcasts about the things such as changing weather systems that some one player may 
be able to experience in a game and you be playing the same game but you don't have that weather system occurring in in your experience of the game and that differentiation is is really intriguing to me because you know not only like with the evolution of humanity we've we've evolved largely as a as a collective community but this this to me seems like a constant slow separation of of community into kind of siloed mentalities in in that respect then the wider implications of bias comes into play because if ai is picking up on our innate either conscious or unconscious biases then the information and the content that we are going to be provided is is going to play towards those biases and further heighten some of these i would say conflicts that we see throughout society today um it'll be just become more commonplace and less back to what i mentioned earlier about like the era of education that people are a little bit more aware of the change in sees the change around them and i guess like more aware of the wider implications of the issue of of bias like that in itself brings me i would say to the the next thing i wanted to explore and that was like the ethics in ai development you know obviously we've got companies at the moment building what seems to be like light speed um trying to kind of go for this seems like a digital arms race like the the quickest to the quickest to the plate um so i'm intrigued as to you know how do we like how do we ensure that biases intentionally or otherwise don't find their way into the AI systems that we are building at the moment. So it's, I mean, the first problem you mentioned, which is that the it is an arms race. Uh, it's an arms race and all the major developers of these AI systems are running as fast as they can. And most of them are very much aware that they're not sure about the dangers of the systems they're putting out there into the world. So it's, um, and they just, they feel like, they feel pressured because they, if they, if they wait and be more cautious, their competitors will not, and um, and so they're all rushing their products to market very very quickly. Uh, and these systems are, they do have biases built into them. I, I do, I believe that it's it's not intentional. Uh, I most of these major corporations. Um, they care a lot about their reputation. They care a lot about the negative consequences of these AI systems. If the, if, if the AI system starts saying offensive things or very overtly biased things, um, but the, the bias is built into the data that it's trained on. And so um, just like we talked about, you know, our artistic culture stagnating um, because it's being trained on art from the past, biases are being are, are are being locked into these systems because the biases exist in the data of the past and um and so it's in some ways these ai systems are you have the potential to drive society backwards back towards towards uh towards prior beliefs and prior uh prior biases because it's it's built into the data it's a big effort for it um, for these AI companies to try to un, undo the bias, and they use human, um, basically human testers in large quantities to to basically look at the responses that come out of the AI systems, and to try to untangle 
the biases that show up. They have good intentions on that front to try to undo the bias, and yet it ends up being very, very difficult because when they when they put another layer on top of, let's say, ChatGPT or, or any of these other conversational systems that tries to filter out when an AI is going to say something that seems biased or offensive, they end up, they can do that, but then they, then they end up with other groups of people saying that the actual filtering is biased yeah. or, or the actual filtering is, is suppressing, uh, suppressing information or is, is censorship. And so it's probably the most difficult problem because like when you're looking at like how should like what if if you ask chat gpt a contra, you know a politically controversial question how should it respond hmm. you know one one option is it should just say i you know i don't i, I don't get into that issue like I, and and but if it does give a response it's not going to satisfy everybody because we we as a society, um, certainly in the U.S., can't agree on we can't agree on what is an unbiased perspective. And you know, and when people when people try to when people try to unravel this, I, I often say, well, imagine if we built this AI system back in the 1950s, right? The the prevailing culture of the 1950s, uh, certainly in, in the U.S., probably in most places, was uh, was far more sexist, um, far more racist. If we built the system back then, how would it have got updated over time? It's especially if it was trained on prior data and it was now producing. It would have locked us in to that to like those <laughs> those cultural perspectives would have been locked in. So, so we have this real danger that um, we get locked in culturally, and it's and even if we can make a system that seems good today, it needs to have a mechanism so that ten years from now it doesn't it doesn't look like it's out of touch with society. And that's very difficult. Yeah, definitely. Uh, been, before I kind of move on to the next bit, I, I wanted to get your take on, obviously, the godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, um, resigned a little while ago from Google um, in respect to his views on the growing dangers of development within the area. Like, what what's your take in respect to, yeah, the godfather taking a step back? And, and leaving, I guess, due to, well, it, it, it's referenced as to his regret over some of the work that he's been part of. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people who have worked on AI for a long time can definitely see the dangers ahead. And and if you're in an executive position at Google like he was, he, he couldn't even talk about it, right? Yeah. He, you know, his resignation is, I, I suspect, largely so he can speak freely about the dangers so that he can try to make a difference and in, in how things go in the future. I, I think, I think that they, uh, it's, it's very clear that these AI systems are, have a lot of pathways for misuse and have the potential to become significantly smarter and potentially have a will of their own, uh, which is a whole separate danger that we need to worry about. It's again, could be 10, 20, 30 years away, but we're not that far away from these AI systems potentially becoming so smart that we lose control of them. And the protections aren't in place to pr protect against that either. I, I think my personal focus is really on the near-term, very human dangers of how humans will abuse the technologies. 
because we have enough we have enough dangers there. Whereas the you know AI becoming self aware or having a will of its own is speculative. Like we like nobody knows if you know if that's ten years away or or a hundred years away. I, I, you know I personally think it's it's not it's not a hundred years away. It's yeah, it's definitely closer. But it's you know, it's clear to people who work on a day to day basis with this technology that it's it's advancing so quickly that it has everybody worried. I mean, it's it's and it's also it's hard to know will they will it will it continue to work advance this quickly, or is it or is it a you know a jolt of advancement, and then it'll slow down again. And you know over you know over decades we've seen bursts of advancement and then. And then it gets, you know, plateaus for a long time, and then bursts of advancement, and then plateaus. We're right now in the in the middle of a burst of advancement, and and the thing that like, the thing that really shocked most people about large language models is that the structure itself is, you know, it's it's an amazing technology, but it's relatively straightforward in terms of the structure itself. And what has driven the advancement is training it on larger and larger sets of data. Yeah, definitely. And that advancement hasn't stopped yet. Meaning, you know, when you have a, a you, you have a certain structure and you advance, you, you train it on ten times more data and it gets significantly smarter, and then ten times more data gets significantly smarter, and now we're at a point where there are a lot of people who worry. Okay, well, it's it's inevitable. I mean, there are other people who say, you know, what, we're we're just running out of data, and it's not going to keep it's it's not going to keep advancing at that rate. It's gonna it's gonna plateau. Nobody, really nobody knows, but because we're in, we're on the upward slope and we haven't found where it, where it plateaus, there's, you know, there's just, there's definitely a lot of fear. If, if it does plateau and we realize, okay, this current structure can only get us to a certain level of intelligence and then to get the next level, there needs to be structural changes. Then I think people will uh, be less concerned about the, uh, about the immediate long-term dangers. My personal belief is that we do need structural change to get to get from what the system is. The systems right now are statistical machines. Um, it's it, to, to get to the point from a statistical machine to a machine that is you know potentially self-aware or have a will of its own. I I think is possible, but requires a structural change in in uh, in how these systems are built. It's not just adding more data. That's my my view, and I say that from the perspective that. Chat GPT, GPT three, GPT four, it functionally can be reduced to a single equation. Like this system is a large language model is essentially a single equation that takes in a a string and puts out a string, and it does have a little bit of randomness, so it doesn't do the same thing every time. But it's a it's a single equation. I I think that uh, biological systems like human brain is has different structural elements in it that, that that make it more complex than that. But you can also, you know, you we might also discover, you know what, our brains are reducible to a, <laughs> to a single equation. And it's not, uh, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, but because we're on this, we're on the upward slope of the curve right now, there's definitely a lot of fear that it's just going to keep getting more, it, we're not going to plateau, we're going to keep adding you're training on bigger and bigger data sets and it's going to continue to get smarter. Yeah, definitely. And I guess like going back to some of the earlier p- bits and pieces we talked about, we obviously flagged the US federal court ruling in early, early doors, but equally we were talking about this kind of digital arms race that we see at this point in time and the requirement for that advancement 
is the necessity of data to train their large language models upon. And this kind of draws me into the wider implications in respect to copyrights and AI, because obviously at the moment there's a, it's kind of fairly well known about the books one, twos and books one, two, and three, in which was used to kind of train some of these LLMs. And uh, the fact that, that how these came about and the implications in respect to pirated usage of people's content to, to train AI systems, I'm intrigued to get your thoughts on kind of the realities of that and I guess like the wider implications. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so it's a complicated issue because every government has a different view on it. So there's not, there's not even a global view. I think, I think Japan has said that you can train on anything and it's not, doesn't violate people's rights. I think that it's, you know, there are definitely are examples where living artists who have a lot of content out there in the world are getting their, are having their artwork trained on. And then the systems are being asked to produce artwork in their style, and and so they're competing with them with them with themselves. Like so, that's a really clear case of like that should not be okay. They should those people should be compensated for sure because uh, these AI systems are basically creating copies of their style. Uh, same thing with musicians. There you know there, there are. Um, there's musical content being created in the style of living musicians, living living composers, living bands, and and that should not be okay. Where it becomes fuzzy is when there's when there's content that's created that's not clearly associated with any any particular artist or writer, or you know, how do you how do you handle that? Uh, you know, in, in a lot of sense, we. You know, we need to realize these AI systems, they are, they're leveraging all of the combined creations of, of humanity. It's, you know, when it, everything that it creates is, is in the style of humans, right? If you, if there was, if we were on another planet and there was some other, some other alien species that had completely different artistic sensibilities that was just made no sense to us. And you trained ChatGPT instead on 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 their content, it would produce completely different content that would be meaningless to us, but would seem very realistic and very you know uh, skilled to them. And so, like if if we lived in that kind of universe where there's uh, where human content was one pool and there was, you know, these different alien pools of content, you know, humanity would say we would demand we deserve compensation. Like yeah. if you're going to, if you're going to go out there and sell human content around the universe, you should give some, you know, there should be a tax to, 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 uh, that goes to humanity. Um, because we, you know, we're alone as far as we know, uh, at least in, in, for all of effective purposes, we don't really have that context and we don't, like we don't feel we don't feel that we should be that we as humanity should be compensated, but individual artists definitely do. Individual writers definitely do. Individual composers definitely do. And so either keep these you know people should have the right to, to opt out. And so if any content creator who's alive or was or or their estate still has copyrighted material. It's not, you know, hundreds of years old. They should be able to opt out and say, don't, you can't train on my content. If they had that right, then the, 
the users of that data would probably negotiate terms, right? They'd probably negotiate, hey, you know, we we want to have, you know, the complete works of Harry Potter in our training data set. Uh, so we'll negotiate terms for that. I suspect that some solution is going to have to happen some, some way like that uh, because it's, I mean, you could have, right now you could ask ChatGPT to write a short story in the style of Harry Potter and it will do a reasonable job. And a year from now, two years from now, it'll probably create a story that people want to read. And and then, you know, compensation required, it's it's a really difficult issue. Yeah, that's why for me personally, I'm really intrigued as to how the kind of proposed legal cases that we see today in respect to some of the pirated usage of the and books one in, in specific reference and how that kind of plays out. And also, yeah, the wider governance piece, I'm, I'm intrigued as to how some of this legislation will kind of address some of the sticking points. I'm not really sure how to reference it at the moment, but yeah, some of these kind of short-term issues because ultimately they'll have to be ironed out. But um, the fact is I, I, I can't see us slowing down the speed of change. I think more so it's there'll be a reactionary response to some of the changes that we go through. Um, but yeah, like it's an exciting time for me. I'm, I'm really intrigued as to how both industry and society evolves with the speed of change that's in front of us. You know, this, this for the last couple of years, especially technology has advanced at such a pace that like now humanity is taking its time to catch up and it's reflecting upon what these, uh, what the wider implications may be. And, 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 you know, that's, that's really good because for me, the, the ability to reflect upon the wider implications will allow people to move forward in, in a way that's a little bit more conscious about their surroundings rather than unaware and that's that that can only be a good thing I, I guess like there's a few other questions I wanted to delve into as well obviously one of the other advancements that we saw that got an awful lot of people excited a little while ago was the narrative around the, the metaverse and I guess now that the hype has settled settled down per se like what what are your views in respect to like the metaverse is was it overhyped or was it something that is is yet to really show its show its teeth so i think it's both uh, it's definitely overhyped but everything gets everything gets overhyped and then settles back to reality i i, I do think that the the metaverse whatever word ends up uh, we end up calling it yeah. is a is a very significant technology that is inevitable for for humanity and, and and i say that because what in my mind when we talk about the metaverse what we're really talking about is computer computer systems evolving from flat content on flat screens to immersive content in immersive environments and uh and those immersive environments could be completely virtual worlds or they could be augmented worlds and and in my mind the the ultimate computer system of the future will, will be a will be augmented worlds where your uh, people are not sitting in front of screens. Content is just all around us, and um, and that content will be mixed with the real world. And so you we will have this mixed reality of the real and the virtual, and and that's just the most natural way to interact with information. That's when we 
start to forget what's what's real and what's computer generated. We're we're in the ultimate form of of information display. When you know Meta made the big kind of marketing push around the word metaverse, it really got people thinking more about you know, these clo- closed virtual worlds. Which which I do think I mean I do think fully virtual worlds are great for entertainment, great for gaming, uh, great for uh, vertical applications from education and, and there's great applications in medicine. Uh, but I don't think it's going to transform the world. I, I think that augmented reality or mixed reality, when we have uh, lightweight, stylish eyewear that, that doesn't make people look strange, but allows us to have all of our content just in, in our world, just placed like, like that's ultimately where computing is going. You know, Apple, you know, obviously launched their yeah, the uh, vision pro their vision pro where they announced it a few months ago, it will start shipping, I believe uh, early next year. And it is extremely effective device for doing mixed reality. It's very expensive and it's also large. Uh, So it's not, it's not the device that they expect to, to change society, but I do think it's the device they expect to get into the hands of developers who will create the content that will then precede the device that changes society. So I feel I, I, I feel confident that Apple's roadmap is that within just a few years of, of the Vision Pro, we will see very high volume products that are stylish and allow content to just be everywhere. Mm. And that I, I think is um, is going to impact impact everyone, impact how we interact with, with computers and we'll stop looking at flat screens. And AI is going to play a big part in that uh, because when you can put content everywhere, no human could create that much content, right? And so we're going to have AI-generated content that is everywhere, uh, and is you know, that's the scalable way to to create content. And there will be uh, AI-generated characters and that are in our world that um, that are our assistants or coaches or um, guides. And uh, and we will be interacting with them, and and there's really remarkable things that that will come out of that. At the same time, we need you know we need protections and regulations and policy to to protect us against those very same dangers that we talked about before. Things uh, like AI having the ability to manipulate us, mm. uh, because when we're in a, a virtual world or an augmented world, we're even more vulnerable to manipulation than when we're sitting in front of a screen, because what we're doing is we're putting on a headset and we're saying, okay, third party, whether it's Meta or Apple or Google or anybody, we're giving you the right to change everything that we see and hear around us. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, you have these AI tools that can customize what every single person sees and hears in real time. Yeah, and so that is potentially the ultimate tool of persuasion, unless there's regulations that say, you know, no, you can't use these tools to, uh, to influence people. You can, you can use it for entertainment, uh, but you can't do targeted influence in virtual environments where what people see all around them is you know, they can't tell the difference between what's promotional content and what's you know, authentic content. And so hopefully we'll have, we'll have good policy. And then I, I think these tools will be pretty remarkable. Uh, and, and they'll, you know, they'll expand what it means to be human. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, and, and the reference points are there and that's, you know, touching back to the um, concept of culture, but, you know, we, we have things such as 
like the the visual representation of what films like Minority Report or Ready Player One looked like and felt like, and also to an extent, video games like Cyberpunk. There, there is the reference points there, and I guess like in respect to the various different iterations of the be it Vision Pro or the direct competitors. To me, the evolution will be quicker than the transition that we saw through through mobile, for example, from like the eighties like massive brick phones to the types of phones that we have today. But it, it'll move at a, a larger and quicker pace. But ultimately, that's that's the interesting part for me. It's it's the fact that we're we're going to kind of enter this augmented reality that. From an ease of usage, this is this is why I looked at things like the the metaverse, and I found it exciting and fascinating. But it, from a consumer perspective, it did it didn't make my life easier. Therefore, the mass adoption wouldn't be there. In respect to things like augmented reality, where you could be having a conversation with myself and you, while whilst I'm also looking at booking like a dentistry appointment or whatever it may be, um, you you have the ability to make your life easier therefore i do think it will be embraced by wide society and there will be mass adoption um and that's that's where it's for me it's intriguing to look at you know the premise of generative ai as a forward-looking system rather than what we see at the moment which is largely a backward-looking bias so yeah like in respect to innovation and forward and forward thinking well, I'd love to get your opinion on that too. So to comment on adoption of augmented reality or mixed reality, uh, so I agree that I believe the adoption will be rather quick when um, when the tools come out that are lightweight, low cost, have, have good battery life, and people feel comfortable wearing them out in public. And, and, and I say that because we can look at adoption curves going forward by looking at, say, the past. If you look at um, the iPhone, which I think was launched in 2007, it only took five or six years to go from the iPhone being launched to smartphones as an industry producing more units than flip phones. And flip phones were way cheaper and performed the core function of the telephone. And so nobody, nobody knew they needed an iPhone when they had a flip phone. Nobody thought they'd spend $1,000 on a phone when they had a flip phone. And yet it, it was, you know, completely, you know, took, dominated the industry in just five or six years. And the reason for that is that if you didn't have a smartphone, you felt like you were missing out on content, right? Yeah. You're, you're out there in the world and other people have access to content and you don't. So now imagine that uh, Apple launches their Vision Pro and within two years, they launch uh, lightweight, stylish glasses that people feel comfortable wearing that gives you content when you're walking down the street or walking through store or at, in your house, everywhere. Well, now you, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have uh, your mixed reality eyewear, you're missing out on content, and you feel pressured to to adopt the technology. Uh, it's and it's it's not even necessarily this making your life easier, and I think it will make your life easier, but you actually feel like you're at a disadvantage if you don't have it, <laughs> and so there will be extreme pressure. Uh, for rapid adoption, uh, if it's if the parameters of you know of cost and and battery life and uh, and what it looks like all uh, make it you know, get the adoption ball rolling. Once it gets rolling, it will it will snowball very very quickly. Um, 
going back to just adoption in general, generative AI, same thing, right? Like we saw, um, we saw these tools like Midjourney and um, and other generative artwork tools take off really fast because they're uh, they're relatively easy to use. Not as easy as they should be, but they're relatively easy to use. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive, and they're super fast, and they're and they create and and so they're adopted extremely fast. Um, you know, ChatGPT famously you know reached uh, uh, what 100 million users in two months, uh, which was at, at that time the, the fastest because it's helpful and it's easy, actually extremely easy, and and you know now it's you know the, the adoption curve has, has settled down a little bit, but it's I. I I think it's just a, a pause. I mean, there's more competitive products coming out there as well, but it's very clear that the adoption of large language models into society will be the, f- the fastest transition that we've seen of a major technology, right? I mean, large language models are as significant as, like we talked about earlier, the, the internet in terms of their potential impact. And and again, I think within 24 months of the, of the day ChatGPT was launched, was we will feel like it's ubiquitous adoption. I also think, you know, bearing in mind the the changes that we're going through at the moment, um, that ability to reflect upon the type of society and world we want to live and operate within, it, it gives us an opportunity to move from largely just a digital revolution to more of a digital renaissance and an ability to look at the craft of art and culture and equally the the longer term issues and implications that potentially could play out and be a bit more conscious in our decision making and how how we build how we operate how we create and 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 like pillars in which we we found future society upon so yeah just i'm an optimist right so i I think that where we're going next is is ultimately defined by our actions of the present and you know, that's why I'm so intrigued by conversations like this, because it gives us an opportunity to delve into the finite detail and um, to raise levels of awareness. And then equally with that, raise opportunities for reflection and and with a greater view and respect to the outlook of what the future may hold. And that's why I think like the next question I wanted to ask was in respect to the wider impacts on industry, politics and wide, and wider society, like a lot of the issues that we've talked about today and also opportunities um from a political stance i would say like it they're not really front of mind at this point in time it's it's still largely reactionary rather than proactive in respect to some of the cycles that they they go through um but yeah like i just love to get your take in respect to the impacts on industry politics and wide wider society yeah i mean so we've talked a lot about the dangers and risks i think that there are remarkable positives in terms of just you know these tools are are amplifiers for human creativity and amplifiers for human productivity and have a remarkable uh, potential for for use in education could be used as a as a positive force in in politics and 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 so if, from my perspective if we can get if we can if we can get the protections in place that to pre- prevent the the negatives, the dangers, the potential positives are extreme. And you know, I am optimistic that we have a good shot at putting putting these protections in place because society is is actually being more reflective than they have in the past. And I think the reason for that is that most uh, politicians and policymakers 
feel like they, they kind of missed the ball on social media. Mm. Social media was a, a, a revolution, changed how society interacts, changes how society shares information. Um, the, by and large, uh, policymakers did not anticipate the negative impacts of social media. Uh, the ability, the, the fact that social media has caused society to uh, to become polarized has, has caused this drive, this increase in um, in misinformation and disinformation and um, and division. Uh, and I think that they the, the reason for that is that um, they didn't. Nobody really took seriously that social media was a fundamentally different form of media <laughs> than the media that came before. Uh, you know, we had radio and television. Uh, regulators in every country felt like, oh, we know how to we know how to regulate advertisements on uh, and information flow on radio and television. Social media is the same thing; same rules will apply. And, and they didn't realize that there was one you know subtle change, which was that oh, social media allows targeted influence, not just influence. It allows. Uh, and it allows uh, content to get siloed and it, and it allows, um, you know, this ecosystem that drives misinformation and, and disinformation. And so now regulators are playing catch up to realize, OK, how do we undo those types of problems? And because of that, I think they're actually taking the, this next generation of technologies, AI technologies, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> they're saying, OK, we, don't, we, we waited way too long. Uh, to try to uh, solve and address social media problems. And it's almost impossible to undo those damages after the fact. And, uh, and because of that, and because it's in, in many cases, the exact same companies that are AI technologies, certainly speaking to regulators in, in the US and in, in Europe and in other places, I think the fact that it is that social media did not get, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that when social media emerged, it also had the potential to be utopian technology that would bring the world together and uh, and give a voice to the voiceless. And, and and it didn't do those things. And if had it been regulated, it probably would we'd still be looking at these social media platforms as being these, you know, these great uplifting tools. Uh, and instead, there's really very, very negative sentiments around them. And I think that that maybe is the thing that w is driving really what, what is aggressive policy, uh, aggressive policy push around AI so that we don't make the same mistake twice. And because AI technologies uh, are moving faster. And so we have even, you know, it, it is another pressure for regulators to move faster and AI technologies has potential to be even more powerful. And so, so I, I think, you know, based on the amount of, of effort that's going right, going in right now to, to, uh, to putting protections in place, I, I do think there's there's reason to be hopeful that hey we can we can control these technologies, and uh, and basically allow us all to benefit from the really the positive the positive things that will come out of it, and you know contain its ability to to perpetuate the problems that you know in, many of them just emerged in social media and. And now have the ability for, to be amplified with with generative AI. You know, from a positive stance, that's also why I'm so intrigued and interested in the fact of things like the EU AI Act. But equally, I think for for governance to really take more ownership in respect to the evolution of change, it kind of needs to be done more on simply just 
not just EU, but more of a collective global society coming together in respect to wider society and forming some form of technological block where it's like, you know, this is the this is governance applied to the entire to entirety of the world rather than simply siloed entities per se. So I, I am intrigued into seeing how that comes around. And I think back to, you know, we've had a number of years of separation. And I think the opportunity we have by such acts and such governance we have an opportunity to bring people together to the table and talk about what society is going to look like in the future. And yeah, that that's another reason to be optimistic is it, it, it will through by its very nature, bring people together and in, into the conversation. And, and that's, that's for the benefit of, of everybody. Um, I also want, you know, before we kind of close it out, we, we've talked largely about all, all different aspects of AI and its evolution and how we got, got here today. But equally, we, we haven't really talked too much about your company and the, that that company was founded upon. And I guess also, um, where you are today and what, what the future holds. Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned at the, at the start, you know, I run an AI company called Unanimous AI, which is really focused on connect using AI to connect groups of people together to amplify their their collective intelligence. And so instead of replacing people with algorithms that can make decisions for us or make forecasts for us uh, or make estimations for us, what, what we do is we allow groups of people to, to be connected in real time and uh, make significantly more accurate predictions and decisions and forecasts. And, and we call the technology Swarm AI because it's actually based on the biology of swarm intelligence. Um, if you know, evolution, your know, mother nature has addressed this issue for hundreds of millions of years. And how do you take a, a large population and allow them to make decisions together very rapidly in ways that are smarter than the individuals could do on their own? And, and it evolved multiple times. Flocks of birds function together and make decisions together. There's, there's no, no leader, there's no follower. Uh, and yet they can make good decisions and function and, and make better decisions that the individuals could do on their own. Swarms of bees do the same thing. Um, that's where the word swarm intelligence comes from. But uh, swarms of, of hundreds and hundreds of bees uh, can make really good decisions together that are really sophisticated. They can solve complex, uh, complex problems by making decisions as a swarm that the individuals could, could never do. And then schools of fish, again, very different organisms involved. A school of fish could have thousands of individuals. They can navigate the ocean, make split-second decisions. Nobody's in charge, and they, they can survive and make decisions. And so biologists refer to each of these types of, of systems as a superorganism, where they're, they're functioning together as a superorganism. They're, they're leveraging the, the observations of all the different individual members. And if you think of a school of fish, they're all seeing a different view of the world. They have different view of their surroundings. And yet they're making decisions together uh, in real time and functioning as a superorganism. And so what we do at Unanimous AI is we, we allow humans to do the same thing. Uh, we have a software called Swarm, and we allow groups of people to connect. Hundreds of people uh, can make predictions and, and decisions. And, and, and it turns out that when we allow groups to work as a swarm and, and make a prediction or a decision, they become significantly smarter. We've we've done studies with with MIT where we had groups of, of financial forecasters, and uh, they come together as a swarm, and they could predict you know 
the price of gold, the price of oil, the S and P five hundred, and and they can increase their accuracy by thirty five percent when they work together as a swarm. Uh, we've worked with uh, Stanford University Medical School having groups of doctors make diagnoses as a swarm, and we see that very small groups working together as a swarm, four or five doctors can reduce their diagnostic errors by by over thirty percent. And we see that in everything from uh, from medical decisions to, to sales forecasting to one of our customers is, is actually the United Nations. They, they use Swarm to predict famines around the world. And they, they have a group of experts. They come together in, in our software and they make predictions. What's the probability that there's going to be a famine in a particular nation in the next 18 months? And they can make a faster and more accurate forecasts. And so, so that's what that's. The type of technology that I work on, we you know we continue to advance the technology. In you know our ultimate goal is to be able to enable very large groups, you know, thousands of people, to make optimized decisions as a swarm, not just for business decisions and not just you know for financial decisions, but for political decisions and you know, for solving you know, big problems yeah. that can't easily converge on and, and reach decisions on. And and so we're we're getting involved in in governance decisions and policy decisions, especially when you have when you have large groups and they have lots of conflicting opinions. Uh, a swarm turns out to be a really good way to find the solutions that optimize the the satisfaction of the whole group. Uh, it's it is essentially nature's way of 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 groups finding the solutions that are best for everybody. I mean, if you think of a school of fish, what what doesn't happen in a school of fish is they don't. They don't just argue and uh, and then get mad at each other and go and swim off in two different schools of fish. Like that, like that never happens uh, because they because the way a swarm works is it it actually finds the solutions that that the group can best agree upon as opposed to our current political processes which seem to drive groups to entrench and and never reach a decision. I think and I also think it's a right way by bringing people together the opportunity to bring those like in some cases diverse perspectives on, on a particular topic to come to a, a a quicker more effective more valuable solution and um yeah like it's another reason for me to be op- optimistic in respect to what the future holds. Um I could talk to you all day we've we've just got like two two last questions to close out on obviously the the first one is from our community so there's a question from one of our listeners that wanted to understand can the overuse of ai create a similar effect to google syndrome and what can be what can we do to combat that and i guess like beyond that the final question would be a reflection from you like from key thoughts or takeaways that you'd like to leave with our audience so i do worry a lot about overuse of of ai uh partly because it's interactive and it will be more increasingly interactive and so when you know when you're interacting with an ai that's that's adapting itself to you, you know, you could kind of go down a rabbit hole and, uh, and, and don't necessarily realize that, that you're being swayed in a particular direction or, or even just that you're, um, you're getting into a kind of a narrower and narrower world where it's just, it's, it's you and the AI because it's, it's, it's almost like a mirror to yourself. It's it's telling you what you want to hear. It's responding in the way that you want it to respond. And it could become very, very addictive and it could become very distorting in just our views of, of the world. So uh, I do think that we will end up, we will soon worry that, that people will oh people will be overly exposed to these AI systems that are in some sense just reflecting back 
to themselves what they want to hear. In, in terms of just you know overall you know points, I think that you know we're definitely in in the middle of a revolution where these AI systems uh, are uh, are going to change the world very very quickly, and uh, and they're going to change the world in in many you know, again positive ways. At the beginning we talked about how we're we're going to be we're entering this age of conversational computing where we talk to our computers and our computers talk back. Like that's actually extremely convenient and and a much easier way to interact with information than uh, than typing into a chat or typing into you know search engine just being able to to talk and and so it's it's realizing a technology that is ultimately very very positive for for humanity and so um, to me it's really just about making sure that we also protect against the downsides so that these things can can unlock what will be really you know, magical uses but not have uh, not allow the, the powers that control these technologies to to also abuse them. I'll just say it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for your time. Yeah, no, it was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.